0: It's time now once again for our Saturday edition Planet Korea, which we are devoting to the recent news surrounding the Sewol Ferry. The three years since that ferry sank have been hard on Korea. It's been a national trauma for all Koreans, but especially, of course, for those families of the more than 300 people who died and for the nine victims that remain missing, the hardship continues to this very day. Now, does this whole Sewol tragedy come to some kind of closing chapter now that the boat is raised and now that the boat is on its way to being examined on dry land? We're going to take a moment just reflect on what this country has gone through over the past three years with a journalist who's been covering the story right from the very beginning. Stephen Borowick is with us in the studio. Hi, Steve. Hi, Kurt. How are you? Yeah, great to have you here. Um You were there uh, three years and change ago. You're a newsman, presumably sitting in a newsroom when those first bulletins crossed. Was it during business hours? It was, right?
1: Yeah, it was about 10 or 11 in the morning. Mm. And the way that I remember getting the news is on that day, I had plans to meet a friend of mine for lunch, Mm. a friend of mine who works at a major news agency. And she sent me a text right when the first news came in saying, I don't think we can meet for lunch today. This boat is sinking. And I said to her, what, what boat, what are you talking about? And that was the beginning of it for me. That was when I started looking up online, seeing what was happening. That's right when the first images were starting to come in. Yeah. And uh, at that time, there was just a, a kind of lack of reliable information. And people were trying to parse what was going on. And that was the beginning of, as we all know, a very intense and
0: very emotional episode those first images showed the boat on its side basically in the ocean right still the full gravity hadn't quite come across and it was a confusing day too wasn't it because at a certain point uh there was kind of an all clear like okay we've got this in hand
1: yeah and i remember seeing that report and emailing my editor and saying this was kind of the second time that we chatted about this and she said okay well if everyone has been rescued then i guess we can you know we can skip it we don't need to cover this Hmm. and wow how wrong we were yeah and that not long after that, another news bulletin came in saying that there were still I don't remember exactly how many but there were still more well over a hundred people that were unaccounted for.
0: It was almost uh, watching in real time how information is channeled here in Korea. every country has its foibles in terms of how emergency information is distributed. but the level of confusion that day I remember being very notable and conflicting reports back and forth it must have been especially hard for those parents most of them were young kids on that uh, boat they were on a high school trip weren't they
1: they were and this was sort of one last bit of fun that they were going to have before starting to prepare for the university entrance exam which as we all know in korea is a really important sort of milestone for one's preparation Mm -hmm. for university and for adulthood more generally and so this was a trip that they put together they'd taken the boat instead of flying because they you know this much of them came from kind of working class families who had to save costs where they could Mm -hmm. and i think right from that day there just became this frantic process of trying to figure out how this could go so wrong
0: processing it as a news story in a newsroom did you have a feeling that there was sort of any one particular authoritative source of information On what was going on, moment by moment? Or was it coming in from all different kind of voices?
1: There were multiple sources, but in a case like that where where something's happening at sea, it's hard to verify because it's it's just logistically and physically difficult to get to where it's happening and to get real-time information. So I think at that time a lot of people were relying on the Coast Guard and there were a couple of other government bodies that were trying to figure out what was going on. But as you alluded to, there was some kind of cross signals and there was some some fumbled information. And that really contributed to the sense of almost panic that I think people felt nationwide, like watching on TV and watching online and and refreshing social media and trying to figure out what was happening. The, The uncertainty is something that I think
0: a lot of people remember vividly. So you canceled your lunch plans. This is obviously a developing story. At what point was it even in that first few hours... Did you get the impression that this is uh, a massive massive story that's going to be bigger than some kind of domestic accident that this is going to be something that would last. Uh, I don't even you couldn't have predicted it would have lasted 3 years on that day. But did you get the feeling that this story was going to go on and on?
1: On that day if you had told me that 3 years from now I would still be thinking and writing about this I I definitely wouldn't have expected that, but I guess I started getting a sense of the gravity of the situation Once it became nighttime in Korea and once the sort of the rest of the world started to wake up to this story, when people in Europe and people in North America were waking up and I was getting a lot of uh, calls and emails from broadcasters and and print media outlets asking for coverage on this, asking what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I, I was pretty early on surprised at the amount of international interest in this. I guess what I didn't grasp at that time was the extent to which this would spark a very substantial discussion about different aspects of Korean society. And this would really cause South Korea on a domestic level to reflect on what kind of society this is and what kind of world they've created. And that's a conversation that's still very much ongoing.
0: Mm. When the global interest kicks in and you start getting the requests from these overseas news networks, it's no longer a story about a boat. That's you know a tragic story about a boat sinking. It's becoming an examination of this accident happened at midday and the sun is down now, and these kids are not rescued yet.
1: That's a big part of it, and I, I think um, another part of it. It was just the you know the, the the journalistic stories that have the most velocity are ones that you know are things that we wouldn't expect, and so I think to a lot of international editors and people who consume international news, this was not something that people expected coming from South Korea. This yes. is a country that's known for a very strong transportation infrastructure, some advanced technology. It's a quote-unquote developed country. If if there was a large ferry sinking in Philippines or Indonesia, it would not have garnered nearly the amount of interest that it did. Mm-hmm. And also, I think just for any any warm-blooded human the, the story of a bunch of, of course. innocent high school kids going on a trip that's supposed to be really fun ending in this kind of tragedy was just something that's going to grab anyone's attention another thing I would say is just the that climate of uncertainty just continued to linger there were talks of like well you know maybe there will be air pockets or maybe some people will be rescued and there, nobody really could put their finger on what was going on and it was a very, very intense kind of emotional yeah. situation.
0: I mean, it's a it's a part of the world where you have a Coast Guard and a Navy on a hair trigger anyway. That should be ready for anything. Oh, by the way, the U.S. Navy is hanging out in this neighborhood too. And I think there was a whole lot of confusion as to why this was dragging out and dragging out without some kind of resolution. Let's, let's pivot away from the logistics failure of the day and uh, let's look at some of the more human aspects, I mean, you had a chance in reporting this over these years to observe how Koreans processed their grief. Any particular observances that you you made in terms of how the parents, the victims' families got their head around what had happened?
1: First of all, I would say that grief is universal. I would say that the way that the people who were most directly affected on this, the grief that they experienced was something that people in all human societies, the, the pain and the anguish that they felt. And... You know, just speaking as, as somebody who writes about a country for an international audience, in, as a foreign correspondent, the challenge is to extract things that are universal, that someone who has doesn't have any connection to the society can identify with. And so when I wrote about this, I, I did a lot of stories with parents who had lost their children and, and relatives who had lost loved ones. And I tried as my best to depict them as basic, humans going through basic human emotions in a really tragic situation and responding to it as best they could. At the same time, another part of being a foreign correspondent is kind of explaining the unique aspects of the society that you're covering. And one unique thing, I think, about how Korea responded to this crisis was a lot of people were pointing their fingers at the government. Mm. So you, in this case, you had you know Chung and Marine, and you had a few different companies that we could reasonably suspect of of not following proper protocol and of and of having some fault in this case, but it wasn't the the protests and, and the the vitriol that we saw was mostly directed at the government for what people perceived as an inadequate response to this. And I think that's somewhat unique to Korea. Mm. I think that when something goes wrong, the the expectation is that it's the government is ultimately responsible
0: there's still it's often observed in the media here especially the international media that there's relatively low level of trust in government overall i mean there were multiple tripod legs of blame here right the ship was overloaded there was some bad navigation on the ship and so on but once the ship was in jeopardy the failure of the government to respond in an adequate way is what clearly drew the the anger yeah and i still think that
1: You know, there's still some things that we don't know. And it's like when I speak publicly about this, I'm I'm a little bit hesitant to, you know, put blame too squarely on the government just because I think it's a really complicated situation. Mm. But yeah, there's been some some documentation of things that could have been carried out a lot better. And one thing that I think gets perhaps insignificant attention is... How? where were the regulatory authorities who signed off on this boat leaving port? You know, clearly with the amount of, uh, there was not enough ballast water and the boat was very severely overloaded, top-heavy, that boat had uh, undergone this uh, questionable refurbishment a few years earlier. And so one, as I'm sure you remember, Kurt, there one discussion came up in the wake of this was what role sort of, greed played in this mm-hmm. and and how has how as a society have had south koreans allowed things to get to the point where because someone wants to make more money there they can skirt uh safety regulations and so like where's were their bribes paid here well you know just how did this how was this allowed to happen and that's a conversation again that i think is still hasn't been concluded yet
0: the overwhelming visual that is playing out on TV screens now is, of course, the ship uh, over this past week has been towed into, into dry dock. And that's where, you know, it will presumably remain for the near to medium future. That's a very cathartic image. As a journalist, as somebody who kind of uh, works on a professional way with story arc and so on, does that cathartic image of the boat in dry dock wind up this story or does it still move on, do you think?
1: I, w- I traveled to Jindo uh, more than once. For the first time, was for the first year anniversary of this, and mm-hmm. I met the uh, families of the still missing people who were camped out there. And they were just, you know, they had quit their jobs and they were just had devoted their lives to just waiting this out and, and coming to some kind of conclusion, seeking some kind of what we call closure. After reporting the Sewol, I became really interested in. The, the science of trauma and recovery and how human beings in all situations uh, process this kind of thing and deal with it. And one consensus in the scholarship is that someone's trauma recovery can only really begin once they can identify a clear end to what they're experiencing. Exactly. And so I think for these families whose loved ones have not been recovered, they, they to them this is still very much an ongoing thing. And so I think if if anyone were to say to them, like, well, you need to move on now, they would say, like, well, I can't move on. This is, this is still an ongoing phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just recently, I've followed some of the coverage from Jindo, and I think back to when I met these people, you know, that was in 2015, like, they've been there for three years. This yeah. has been every day of their life for the past three years. And so I think on a personal level and on a, a kind of national society-wide level, it's it's tempting to want there to be an end to this and to be able to say, like, this is over now, and now we can move on. But I
0: think that's still some ways away. You want to honor those families, respect them as much as possible. I wonder if by, by remaining in sort of a suspended state like that, camping out, staying in one place like that, creating this permanent installation...
1: Well, I think the creating the permanent insulation is is just one part of how they process. Sure, I think a lot of these families have they formed a community to support each other, and they've traveled around South Korea and abroad talking yeah. about what they've experienced here and speaking out on behalf of the importance of safety measures. But you know it's it's I think it's really hard for someone who hasn't gone through something like like losing a child has to be among the most difficult experiences in humankind of course and so for someone who hasn't gone through that i, I think it's tough to kind of put ourselves in their place and, and imagine what we might do in their case also in interviewing these families one thing that i've i've gotten from them is their their sense of devotion to their children like someone who has that kind of nurturing instinct when their children are gone i think they they feel a kind of uh, as though the purpose in their life has been taken from them and so some of these parents that I've spoken to have told me that they feel they need to continue these efforts in their children's memory and that they would almost be betraying their children's memory if they were to just move on with their lives. If they were to say, like, well, that was sad, but I'm going to go back to work and I'm going to try mm-hmm. to distance myself from this. I think they they feel a kind of almost an obligation to not get over this. I mean, one yeah. when I did a story uh, last year for the second anniversary, I, I interviewed... Uh, a man who had lost his younger brother. And he told me that uh, his trauma and the grief that he was experiencing was so bad that he had lost his ability to eat. He just totally lost his appetite. And when he did eat, he would often, uh, you know, what he ate would come back up. And he saw a doctor for this, and the doctor recommended that he get counseling and he do all these different things. And he refused to do any of this. And he told me that the reason why was he didn't want to get over this. He felt like his grief, his physical anguish was his last connection to his brother. Mm. And if he lost that pain, if he lost that sense of anguish, then his brother would really be gone.
0: That is quite uh, heartbreaking. I mean, grief as a way to continue valuing the life that was lost uh it's a very circular kind of uh, process when do you ever escape that it's it's hard to imagine i guess when we get if we were to uh recover the the nine missing or if we were to see some kind of permanent memorial uh, or perhaps some kind of very concrete policy changes maybe that puts a final period on this sentence
1: well and as we all know uh a new South Korean government is going mm-hmm. to be elected in May. And this is definitely something that will be somewhere on the policy agenda. I mean, it may not be number one, but this, as we look to the future, I think this is something that those first news bulletins that came out almost three years ago, they, they have a long legacy and the legacy is not going to go away anytime soon. This will be a touchstone for this society for a very long time.
0: And Steve Borwick, you're going to be here to cover it. International correspondent Stephen Borwick, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you.